The Rod and Staff podcast comes out of the host's passion for Christ and his church. It exists to encourage a deeper engagement with issues that pertain to doctrine and life. Check us out at rodandstaff.org. Welcome to this episode of the Rod and Staff podcast. I'm your host, Jason, along with my co-host, Roger. And um, we are here to pump you up. No, that was, remember the good old Saturday Night Live days? Okay. And we're here, well, hopefully to theologically, spiritually, biblically pump pump people up. That's, you know, uh, we're here to talk uh, again about some important biblical theological concepts and uh, do our best to clarify them if we're clear on them, which we are not always, but that's okay. Um, but before we jump into what we want to talk about, which is kind of coming back to that whole covenant theology dispensationalism theme that we started last time, what's your favorite thing, Roger, about theological conversations? And then what's your least favorite thing about theological conversations? <laughs> and I didn't say least favorite people to have oh, theological conversations okay, with. Okay. I know who those are right. in your life, and I'm sitting across, you know, <laughs> right I'm there. one of them. Yeah, that, no, uh, I think the best part is iron sharpening iron, mm-hmm. learning, being refined, being challenged, growing, um, understanding Scripture and God more, mm-hmm. and benefiting from it, because we should benefit. We should be encouraging and, and that excitement. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, the least part is when theology is a competition mm. and it's, I know more than you and let me tell you what, what you don't know or trying to correct instead of trying to engage and, uh, generalizations and not listening to the other person and what they're saying and hearing them out, mm-hmm. but just thinking, you know what they're going to say. So you try to correct them before they even speak. Or you ignore what they're saying and just come up with a different argument, like you do to me. I was just, right? It sounds like having a conversation with a teenager, right? Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you thought I was going to say having a conversation with you. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, one of my professors used to say that uh, there was. It's, I didn't. I've never read Mark Twain's quote, but it, I, he said this was a quote from Mark Twain. He said, "All generalizations are false, including this one." It's <laughs> <laughs> good. Like, oh. It's kind of good. Uh, sounds like Mark Twain. Um, basically, what you described, uh, Roger, is you you like humility in theological conversation. You don't like pride. For me, coming into a theological conversation with someone who I know is humble and after the same thing I'm after, which is mm-hmm. knowing God and understanding his word. Uh, it's exciting. Mm-hmm. I don't mind disagreeing with those that I'm coming and having conversation with, because yeah. like you said, iron sharpens iron. I think that so often in trying to articulate a position, my positions refined and changed. I, I think back to our last episode. I'm like, Oh, I don't I like, I don't like the way I laid that out. Yeah. But you know what? I'll, I won't like the way I lay it out this time either. I guarantee yeah. that. Um, but in conversation, talking with you, talking with other brothers and sisters in Christ about these things can really refine and sharpen and help me to understand. And the, the end result is I can worship God mm-hmm. because he's worthy and because his word is good and his system is glorious and, the more I understand his plan of salvation, the more I understand redemption, 
it blows me away. Now, on the other hand, we come into conversation with some people that are arrogant. Mm -hmm. They presume to know more than they can know. They, 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 it's almost as though they're smarter than God. Those aren't good conversations. Mm -hmm. Those aren't fun. They're not healthy. They don't encourage me. I walk away kind of with a bitter taste in my mouth. Um, so I think theology is meant to be done humbly. And if we can do that, it doesn't matter if we walk away even disagreeing. We could mm -hmm. still have drawn close to Christ through those conversations so, yeah, is that a, that's a, just a pub, public, what do you call it? Public something announcement? Service announcement. There you go. It's a PSA, <laughs> public service announcement. Sorry. Uh, just on my heart, on my heart, my, my soapbox, okay? Um, well, we are back talking about covenant theology and dispensationalism. And one of the things that we want to start with is, again, kind of let's, let's get a sense of what we're talking about. What are, the, what are these two things? Covenant theology, we said last time. Generally speaking, again, generally speaking, has uh, an understanding of all of God's plans and all of Scripture broken down into three covenants. One that is an eternal, kind of a heavenly, we can say, covenant. Mm -hmm. That is the covenant of redemption that God made within himself. A covenant, Father and Son sometimes is talked about. It's Father, Father, Son, and Spirit and other times talked about. But a covenant that they would... the, the that God would redeem a people for himself, that Jesus would come into, enter into humanity in order to accomplish this redemption. And then in terms of historically, kind of what how it plays out, you've got a, the covenant of works, mm -hmm. or some would call it a covenant of creation, but it is a covenant that says people will enter Sabbath rest by obedience and works of righteousness. They will, it is do this and live. Mm -hmm. And Adam, who was created upright, was given this command, live, uh, 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 do this, obey. And if had he obeyed, he would have lived and all of his people after him. But he failed. And because he failed, in order for any to enter into that rest, there had to be another way. And that was the covenant of grace, that people will enter rest by grace through faith in Christ. Not of works, right, but of this grace uh, given, given by grace, entered by faith. Mm -hmm. And so, um, that's why Christ did come entered and accomplished that. And so the covenant that he has with us is a covenant of grace, no longer a covenant of works. That's the basic structure of covenant theology. What about dispensationalism? So I'll give you a couple quotes from a couple uh, dispensationalists who describe it. Um, so, Schofield will describe a dispensation as a period of time during which man is tested in respect to his obedience to some specific revelation of the will of God. Hmm. And so for the dispensation to be a dispensation, you must have three elements. And there's two parties involved, either God and all people or God and a specific group of people. There must be commands or rules to be followed, a test. Hmm. And if the rules are followed, there'll be reward. If and when the rules are broken, the people of the dispensation will be judged, thus bringing an end to that dispensation. Okay. So there's seven classic dispensations. Not mm -hmm. all dispensations hold to all of them. Okay. 
but the seven are dispensation of innocence, conscience, human government, promise, law, grace, and the kingdom or the millennial kingdom. Uh, innocence starting out with Adam and Eve and uh, Adam uh, failing the test. And then you get into the other dispensations. I won't take all the time to go through so gra- all of them. Grace and kingdom are different. It's interesting, yes. Okay, interesting. Yeah, yes. And the, the, At least classically. Yeah, classically. And dispensation of grace is the church age when... Um, okay, got it. Um, and Christ has come. And then there is one other definition or distinction, I should say, say to describe it. Mm-hmm. And this comes from Charles Ryrie, a very well-known dispensationalist. He says, the heart of dispensationalism is... The recognition of a distinction between Israel and the church, mm-hmm. a consistently literal principle of interpretation, and a basic working conception of the purpose of God as his own glory rather than as the single purpose of salvation. So you have the distinction between Israel and the church. You have a literal interpretation, a literal hermeneutic. Mm-hmm. Um, that's consistently applied to all of Scripture. And then you have this overall theme of the glory of God, not um, just a single purpose of salvation. I don't think that's worded quite uh, fairly. Um, yeah, this that, is, it's an interesting... It's, uh, it's supposed to be a distinctive. So yeah. he's saying, hey, look, you covenant theologians aren't living this way or you don't think this way. Right, you don't. Your system does not have the glory of God uh, as the overarching theme versus you know redemption of man or something like that. That seems to be the accusation there. Is that right? Yeah, and, and uh, Michael Vlock, who's a progressive dispensationalist, mm-hmm. he was one of my professors when mm-hmm. I was at the seminary. Um, you know, in his dispensational hermeneutics books, he he emphasizes that same last point, okay, um, where he says that the kingdom of God on earth is central to dispensational theology. The kingdom of God is the primary theme of the Bible, hmm. and then he quotes someone else who says there is more to the Bible than mere redemptive history. The Bible is a history of the rule of God as much as it is the history of His saving acts. Interesting. So understanding that overall theme will help you understand the different dispensations and why um, you don't see the primary focus of Christ as you do uh, maybe in the way covenant theology talks about about it than in the dispensations because Christ isn't in the first dispensation. He's not in the dispensations. He, he comes, but yeah. it's not all leading to and pointing to him in a sense. So interesting. It's how God is dealing with his people and his overall kingdom and his overall glory. And there's definitely some, some blurriness there or tension there because they're definitely going to say the prophecies were about Christ. And, Correct. you know, I'm assuming they would say Genesis three is referring to Christ. And sure. The proto evangelium. Yeah. Okay. So that that's fascinating because it almost sounds like, I mean, I, this is going to be, and I don't mean to, to, caricature but it sounds like law is far more prominent in dispensationalism this this idea of a rule and how god's reign and rule is versus gospel being the central 
piece, I guess. Well, if you look at the definition and the understanding of dispensation dispensations, mm-hmm. it's obedience and failure to obey. And they're right. all tests of mankind. So because man keeps failing, mm-hmm. new dispensations are coming about. So it is very law-focused in that sense where it's obedience and your disobedience has now led to the next dispensation. So, so uh, when you were le- when you were explaining that, it's funny. I mean, I went to a dispensational school. I, I probably should already have known these things, but um, <laughs> but I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, that's right. Now I remember some of that. It's been a long time since yeah. I've been in seminary. Okay, but you're you know these this dispensationalism they it failed and they go to the next one. I, I think there there there's something parallel to that <clears throat> in covenant theology in that there are these republications almost mm-hmm. of of the covenant of works uh, that we see in the scriptures like not just that but we see we see the failures intentionally highlighted in 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 the book of genesis for instance you know you've yeah. got adam and eve they fail then you've you you have this build up to noah okay noah becomes this the only one saved in his family mm-hmm. and then he fails Okay, so there's like this recreation motif or redemption motif with with Noah, but then he fails as well. Yeah. Then you've got the same thing happen with Abraham, right? And then he ends up kind of failing too. He yeah. himself is a sinner. He, he messes up. And then you get Israel later on and, and they mess up. And it's like, the, but it's pointing, it's really one story pointing forward to Christ. He was the plan from Genesis 3 on. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I don't think they, <clears throat> in dispensation, we would, you know, you wouldn't say that Genesis 3, 5 isn't about Christ, isn't about the yeah. seed. Yeah. But the the outworking and the way that you're pointing mm-hmm. to and the symbolism is interpreted differently because of the literal hermeneutic. So you wouldn't interpret passages with keeping that, that maybe Christ at the center of the passage because they'll say, uh, Passages may point to Christ, but don't put Christ into passages where he's not. And I understand that charge in, in a sense. But, but So that's fascinating. That leads us to a real quick detour, maybe. Yeah, maybe it's not necessarily it. a detour, but um, we talked about off the air uh, Luke 24 and Jesus on the road to Emmaus with his disciples there. Yeah. And one of the most interesting parts of that story is obviously he reveals himself in the scriptures from beginning to end, right? He's yeah. showing he teaches them to, to see Jesus in uh, the Old Testament scriptures. And I was talking to our Wednesday night group um, a couple weeks ago, and I was sharing with them that, look, imagine Jesus has just now revealed that the scriptures are all about him, and they point to him, and he showed the, the disciples how it points to him. Now he turns around and he says, okay, but now when you go back to read the scriptures, forget me as as the, the centerpiece and just make sure you interpret it according to its particular context there, literal, yeah. gram, grammatical, whatever. No, he is the literal <laughs> interpretation, right? You would never say, okay, now forget that Christ is the center and now go back and, and read it different. From that point on, those disciples, when they see the Old Testament scriptures, yeah. They're going to see Christ, and that's good, and it's right. And if you look at the tenets of what dispensationalism is holding to, you can maybe understand why there's less of an emphasis going that direction because this distinction between Israel and the church and the the understanding of there's promises made to Israel, Mm -hmm. there's land promises, 
there's the Davidic covenant and, and, and the reigning. And you look at these promises, these promises are future. They haven't been fulfilled. Therefore, you have the storyline of both Israel and the church at the same time. And so you can't, they'll say, well, don't reinterpret those promises. Don't, you know, don't spiritualize or use allegory in those because mm-hmm. those need to be literally fulfilled. So when you look at the passage, we may be trying to keep our mind on Christ when they're keeping their mind on a promise fulfilled to ethnic Israel, not seeing the covenants fulfilled in Christ, which changes in how you look at it overall, yeah. right? And how we're looking at that specific context. So that, that changed in my preaching so much when mm-hmm. I started to see, okay, Christ is where all scripture is pointing to. So when I'm in the Psalms and I'm looking at that, I'm looking at this obedience per se, you know, the, the, uh, you know, who could, who could ascend the, <laughs> right. The mountain. Yeah. The hill. Yeah. Uh, one who has clean hands and pure yeah. heart. <laughs> None of us can. And that's the point. And Christ has, and yeah. through him, we can, we can come to God seeing it that way changes. But if you don't, then you can see a difference in how we're, how it's interpreted. The, the Psalms are a great example because the Psalms, in many cases are talking about the Davidic King or they are the voice of the Davidic King even, right? Yeah. It's it, most of them are written or many of them are written by David. And so this idea that it's about the Davidic King until we, we get to who that Davidic King is. Yeah. We might have some ambiguity. Like who's that? It's the one that come, the, the one that's going to come and sit on the throne, but we know who that is. That's, that's Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> so now we can look back and go, Oh, Right now, I get it. Who can ascend the hill? Who the one who has clean hands? Well, there's only one, and the whole point is, we couldn't. But guess what? In Him, we have, yeah. because He did, and we're in Him. Covenant of grace, right? Yeah. Uh, either we're in Adam or in we're we're in Jesus, and that's the big theme of Scripture. Yeah. Um, it seems interesting uh, conversation here. What what about? push on on hermeneutics you said literal there's this literal hermeneutic that is consistent throughout okay i would hear on the other end some covenant theologians might say well that's not exactly a literal hermeneutic but a literalistic hermeneutic yeah and they'll push back and say no it's not literalistic where there are different genres we know poetry okay then we interpret it that way okay. when the text calls for it but if it's not there it's literal so when you get to revelation mm-hmm. literal um and so but it's not always literal it's not always so it's not <laughs> really consistent okay in a sense and and there are passages where i look back now and i think you change them you change understanding there and this book pointed out some of those okay. where it was like, how are you changing? Well, I'll just give it to you. The yeah. the temple. So the temple is rebuilt in the millennial kingdom where sacrifices are being made. Hebrews says, Hebrews uh, 9 and 10, Jesus is the fulfillment of sacrifices. There is no longer sacrifice for sin. We no longer need anyone. Uh, we no longer need to do this. He has sat down. The priests are no longer necessary. Yeah. Well, in the millennial kingdom, the sacrifices are brought back because of the passages in Ezekiel seeing a future temple where sacrifices are being done. Yeah. Well, I learned those sacrifices are not sacrificial sacrifices for sin. They're memorial. Mm-hmm. They're just memorial. 
But if you literally go back and do Ezekiel, yeah. there is no such thing as a memorial. You change the meaning. So yeah. you're not being literal even with what you're saying needs to literally happen. Interesting. So what is it? And I talked to somebody about this recently and pushed on it because I said this is a big problem because Hebrews has changed my understanding of sure. the whole Levitical system is done away with. I yeah. can't get past that. You can't change the meaning and still say you're being literal with the passage. I haven't read a good argument, not saying it's not out there, mm-hmm. but I have not read a good argument. Maybe Vlock will try to argue it, but yeah. how can you now redefine something to become <clears throat> memorial? Um, one of the defenses, well, it's never meant to take away sin, and, and you know, it's just a, a performative, not functional. And yes, it wasn't taking away sin. It was pointing to the necessity of one to take away sin, but Christ did it. But why live in the shadows when you already have the substance? Yes. Why do we need to go back to the shadows when he's already? And what is the point? But in their system of millennial kingdom, that's a main emphasis without the temple. Which is fascinating because when Jesus is speaking of the temple, he says, tear this temple down and in three days I will rebuild it. Right. What's he talking about? John makes it clear. He's talking about his own body. He's talking about himself. Um, and in a sense, dispensational says, well, <laughs> the Israelites rejected the kingdom when Jesus was here. Mm-hmm. And so there's a, still this sense of the kingdom to come in the future where the covenant theologian, correct me if I'm wrong, is seeing the kingdom is being built here and now when Christ at Christ's first advent fulfilled all the promises. And now the kingdom is here being built rather than this future kingdom with all the promises in the future. Yeah, so it's, it, it seems to me that um, from what I know of most covenant theologians, they would say that the kingdom has come, but it's already not yet, right? Yeah. There's an already aspect of, of Christ reigning. Um, that's how the, the strong man was bound, and that's why we have the church at all, right? He's a resurrected Lord. He is reigning over his church. Um, but it's not yet in its fullness because one day there will be a new heavens and a new earth, and... Mm-hmm. And there will be a different kind of reign of, of Christ in his kingdom. But but yes, to, the kingdom is here. He The, the kingdom came in Christ. So, um, yeah, that's that's an interesting distinction there. What about, um, what about something to do with their, their eschatology? So talk about the, the distinctives of eschatology in, uh, in dispensationalism that really are are like the highlight for them that's a hard one unless you have the you know kind of the the picture is all of these charts and oh numbers, yeah, 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 right? yeah that you go Who in. Was it larkin or whatever there's a chart yeah 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 i <clears throat> excuse me i think the basics are if if you look at the end times and this is very simplistic yeah. in the understanding is that when christ comes back and begins to establish the reign. You have this thousand-year period where the millennial kingdom is set up, and you have him, you know, coming back, and believers are reigning with him during this time period before ultimately the kingdom is going to be fulfilled. So during that time of the thousand-year reign, you have the temple being rebuilt, you have sacrifices being performed, people are being born and dying and being saved, and then you'll get to it. Uh, uh, the very end where, you know, this earth is destroyed and recreated okay. for eternity. That's very, very simplistic. Sure. Um, 
And I know there's so many varieties too. And absolutely pre-mill, uh, uh, or sorry, uh, pre, pre-trib, yeah. mid-trib, post-trib. And those yeah, I should have said that the church is raptured before that thousand year period starts. Um, yeah. And that's what I was going to ask, but I, I, again, I don't know. Yeah. You're, I know you're not the, our dispensationalist expert right now not either, but, all, no. um, just like, I'm not really a covenant expert, but, um, what, what's interesting is do, do believers in that system, they reign with Christ in the millennium or they've already been raptured and taken up. So what's their relation to the millennial kingdom? I'm not even sure that I know the answer to that. I'm not sure if they're coming. That's a good question. I'm not remembering right because there is the rapture, but then there is the returning with Christ to reign with him during that time when he finally goes back on the Davidic throne. That promise is now fulfilled. You're reigning with him over all the nations. How many are reigning? I don't. Yeah. That those parts that were just so hard to grasp. So from the dispensationalist perspective, one of the things that I, like I said, I appreciate, I think last episode is that they want to take the word of God seriously. Mm-hmm. Now I think that the covenant side takes the word of God very seriously. Yeah. So why is that accusation out there from the dispensationalist? Like what's the accusation against the more reformed covenant theologians? Their accusation is that they don't take it literally and that they take it allegorically. I think I've heard two words, mm-hmm. allegorically and spiritualizing the spiritualizing, text. Spiritualizing, right. So they say, hey, look, you're taking the easy way out. Mm-hmm. That there's a promise from God that seems to be very clear about land, that Israel is going to inherit this land. Yes. And you're turning around and you, oh, you covenant, you bad covenant theologian. Bad people. No. Um, <laughs> hey, listen, the covenants, covenant theologians accuse them all the time too. So it's both ways. It goes both ways, right? But they're like, yeah. okay, so you guys, you're spiritualizing. And so, and why is that the accusation? Do covenant theologians say that there is no literal land fulfillment? So they believe the land was fulfilled in Joshua at 20 or 24, where God says that all the promises have been fulfilled. They, they inherit the land. And they question, and then the question is, well, if you're taking it literally, why are you saying it's not fully been fulfilled then? Yeah. If you're literally interpreting scripture. And so. Now they, in, they enter the land. Joshua is given success. They take over the land. The, the tribes have their land. They inherit it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, I, I've heard covenant theologians also refer to the new heavens and new earth as kind of fulfillment mm. as well. I don't, again, uh, I think I would le- lean that direction too, both in, hey, Joshua is one aspect of fulfillment, mm. and then there's this greater fulfillment in the new heavens and new earth as well. Okay, so that's a spiritualizing accusation and an allegorizing Here's a funny story. I was in a hermeneutics class mm. at Talbot wonderful man that was teaching it i just asked a question one day and i said i said can you give us a definition of typology because that was the word in the text that we were looking at and he said ah typology and allegorizing it's all the same (laughs) (laughs) i'm like i mean i was asking the question because coming from a more informed perspective i'm like no no it's not typology is actually uh something very different where it's you're talking about kind of these shadows that are pointing forward to a substance Mm -hmm. and allegorizing is a little bit different where you can have certain parables and things that, uh, each are, are are kind of metaphorically or, or, or symbolically referring to other things. But 
Anyway, that's another accusation that's often laid against um, the covenant side. What other hermeneutical issues come up that you can think of or that came up in, in the book that you wanted to address? I think that, you know, the going back and forth between how to interpret uh, with a literal interpretation, what that actually means, um, mm. and then how that changes when you get to different genres okay. um, in doing that. Um, and the accusation from some of the older school dispensationalists saying that the reason you come to your conclusions is because you're not interpreting literally. So you have a wrong interpretation because of what you're doing. Mm and in how you're viewing it, and that they, it's felt that they're the purest, that that's the purest way to come to Scripture with the hermeneutic in seeing that. But, of course, nobody is completely uh, coming without presuppositions yeah. or neutral, so there's always something driving the way we even talk about what's a literal interpretation. Yeah. So that's interesting. So if you if you view revelation is it 19 where where is the millennium found it's mm -hmm. only really in one place that that language of a thousand years is found if you don't interpret that as a literal thousand years so a thousand times 365 days yeah. right so it's literally 24 hour days yeah etc um you are somehow less than biblical in your hermeneutic and i think that would tend toward even starting genesis one mm. right and starting uh -oh. with the day of the creation i'm in trouble right i mean but that's where it'll start it, yeah are you being consistent from beginning to end and so you have to be consistent with all of it it leads to an interpretation of so you can't have the same understanding of day one and day four of creation in terms of kind of a literal what is a day Sun and moon. I know didn't that was exist. interesting when you brought that up. I'd never yeah. thought about that before. I, I wish I, it was original to me. It's not at all, you know. But, um, but yeah, it's it's a fascinating look at Genesis one. Now, one of the things that used to concern me a lot, and and this is probably beyond dispensationalism, but there were so many that said something like, if you don't take the days of creation as six twenty-four hour days, yeah, literally taking it that way that it's because there is some liberalism in you and and you are going a direction that is it's because outside things are are influencing you not the bible but um you know science is influencing you or, or something else is yep. influencing you and one of the things that's most amazing, a, a friend of mine and you you've heard of him too and I think I don't know if we no we we wanted to interview him but he didn't come on Gavin Ortland oh yeah yeah has a great youtube channel called truth unites mm. And he did a, he's doing a few on, on that topic of creation. Okay. And he shows that Augustine and others even before him didn't hold to a literal mm. six day, 24 hour creation. So it can't be modern science influencing mm. them. It didn't exist at the time. That's so I thought he did a really great job with that episode. Um, if our listeners want to go check that out too. Um, Roger, again, this is such a topic that we're, I know we're jumping around, but we're also, uh, time is flying. So there were some just overall thoughts that you might have that you wanted to bring out, uh, maybe in terms of how to even have these conversations, um, between the two camps. Yeah. So in this book, we, we, we've read, or we're reading the identifying the seed by Robert McKenzie, uh, his last 
paragraph in the book I thought was really helpful Mm -hmm. uh, in discussing these. And this is what he says. He says, our conversations should be based on what we teach, not upon what others mistakenly believe we teach. Mm -hmm. What we teach needs to be based on Scripture, which is our ultimate authority because it is the very Word of God. In order for iron to sharpen iron, there may be some friction just by the very nature of discussing points of doctrine upon which we disagree. These conversations can still be done in love. To love each other does not mean that we need to overlook our theological differences, but these differences do not mean that we cannot continue in fellowship. We worship the same Lord, and we need to seek his glory always in all things. Really well said. Mm-hmm. Really well said. Uh, can't even can't add to that. Just really encouraging to know that you know there's someone out there that thinks that way too. Um, and I think there are many. Yeah, we are in this thing together. Uh, we're trying to understand because we want to worship a God who's worthy. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think what's going to happen is we're going to enter into glory one day and go, oh. Oh, we completely missed the point. <laughs> you know, it's not that, oh, I was right. Oh, see, I was right. It's it's beyond what we ever even imagined. It's that much better than how we've understood it. Um, God is yeah. faithful. And, and I, I love that, you know, I, I think it's clear in covenant theology, but I, I, even our dispensationalist brothers and sisters, we are, we are seeing... The, the wisdom and the beauty and the glory of God as he reveals himself in the scriptures and in history. Um, and it just should cause us to worship. Mm-hmm. So. That's what all theology should be doing Amen. in our hearts, right? All theology should lead to doxology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's stolen from somewhere too. I, I think John frame, but <laughs> I don't know. Uh, so very good. There's so much more to discuss. And again, if you have any questions or thoughts, or topics. I know some of you have sent some topics and we're working on those. We're excited about that too. Please keep sending them in. Feedback at therodandstaff.org. Until next time. If you enjoyed this episode of the Rod and Staff podcast, please subscribe and share with others. For more information or to contact the hosts with questions or comments, please send email correspondence to feedback at rodandstaff.org. That is feedback at rod, the letter N, staff.org.